Welcome to Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All, the Well Mama edition. Join us for this limited series where we have conversations with a variety of experts and community leaders in the field of maternal and child health to discuss how to advance maternal health equity in Illinois. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Kai Holder, and I'm a medical and public health student at Northwestern. Today, I will be moderating our discussion on breastfeeding support. Our guest today is Ms. Janelle Hughes-Jones. Janelle Hughes-Jones is a bilingual breastfeeding peer counselor with more than 18 years of experience working with many organizations to facilitate breastfeeding communities in public health, hospital, educational, business, and faith-based settings in the state of Illinois. Her career as a peer counselor began after the birth of her son in 1994 as a teen mom. She was trained under the Loving Support Model and was employed from 1995 to 1996. In 2016, she became Evanston Hospital's first breastfeeding peer counselor in the Medicaid clinic and took the Rush Breast Peer Counseling in the NICU setting training in 2018. Ms. Hughes-Jones was a part of the How to Build a Breastfeeding Community Task Force, representing one of 100 breastfeeding advocates in the state of Illinois. The Blueprint for Breastfeeding with Health Connect One, the Milk of Life Project for Faith-Based Organizations, Grandmother's Teas, Bridges to Breastfeeding Conferences, and Doctors and Pharmacies Call to Action, which distributed MMM books to pediatricians OBGYNs and pharmacies in Will County. Thank you for joining us today, Janelle. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So since this is a podcast about breastfeeding, can you first give the listeners information about the health and emotional benefits of breastfeeding? Yes, I can. Um, so when a baby is breastfed, they have uh, less chronic ear infections, especially the type that damage hearing. Um, less bronchitis, asthma, diarrhea, less GERD, gastrointestinal reflux disorder, um, less preterm neck, which that's the short, short term, short way to say it, um, necrotizing enteral colitis, less pneumonia, less RSV, bacterial meningitis. It's antibacterial, antifungal, antiviral. Um, children have less obesity and diabetes, fewer speech problems and orthodontic problems, and then less pediatric cancers and improved brain maturity. As far as the emotional benefits are concerned, um, breastfeeding changes the mother or birth person's brain architecture. It decreases risk of child abuse. It turns on oxytocin receptor sites. Um, oxytocin is the bonding hormone. Um, and, and just for like a little side story. So I do always share scientific information with patients, but I also tell stories that essentially share the same thing. So before I breastfed, I used to be what I call an A hugger. If you look at the capital A, like I would just hug people up at the top and then my legs would be like sticking out because I didn't want to be close. <laughs> um, and after breastfeeding my son for four years, I'm definitely not like that anymore. Definitely. Um, helped me be more intimate with people in that way of hugging. Um, my son was also, um, when I would breastfeed him at the beginning, he would kind of like pull away from me and he was only attached at my breast. We almost looked like the, the letter A as well. And um, when we would nurse in a rocking chair, 
he that was the, usually the only time that he would be close. He was later diagnosed with um, autism very much later in his life. And um, I really think that breastfeeding made us both more functional people. Um, I also share as far as um, the health benefits. Um, I was a teen mom, as, as you had mentioned, and um, I was going to give my son up for adoption. So I moved to New Jersey um, from the fifth month of my pregnancy till about three weeks before I delivered. I did not want to breastfeed. Um, I had a breastfeeding class at WIC and I found out in the WIC breastfeeding class that it reduced the top three infant illnesses, which were chronic ear infections, bronchitis, asthma, and diarrhea. And part of the reason I was going to give my son up for adoption was because I thought that he would probably have poor health like I did, um, but I was not breastfed. So I ended up deciding to breastfeed and um, my son was breastfed exclusively for the first nine months. He was in the 95th percentile of both height and weight. The first time that he ever got sick was when he was two years old. And the reason why I remember that is because <laughs> it was projectile vomit in the car. It was an unforgettable moment. Um, he did have one ear surgery for tubes, um, as I had when I was younger. That was one of the five surgeries that I had. And um, it was when he was four years old, right after we had stopped breastfeeding. And um, just an interesting note, when he was 12, he had a doctor's appointment. I happened to be in the doctor's office with him. And the doctor asked my son, um, how long have you been deaf? And my son's like, I'm not deaf. And so I asked the doctor why he would ask that question. And he explained that people that are deaf, when you look in their ears, it's all white or it's all, um, yeah, it's all white. And um, somebody that is a hearing person, um, the inside of their ear is all pink. And my son's was all white. So I always wonder if breastfeeding really helped my son in that arena and if without breastfeeding potentially deafness could have been a possibility. Wow, thank you so much for sharing those stories. Yeah. And um, I was wondering, can you give the audience an overview of your role as a breastfeeding support counselor in Evanston Hospital? Yes, I can. Um, so I take in um, what I call a breastfeeding intake of the Medicaid uh, clinic patients and the social service agency patients. So when I originally started my position, it was only for the Medicaid patients um, at our community health clinic within Evanston Hospital. And um, this past year, the hospital actually took on my, um, took on my, they're paying me. So we're not getting grants to pay me, but the hospital is paying me out of their own budget. And since then, I have moved over from the clinic. I still help clinic patients, um, but I'm employed by the third floor nursery here in the hospital. And I also help all of our social service agency patients from like five or six different social service agencies who deliver here at our hospital. Um, I listen to their past birth and breastfeeding stories. Um, I find out what their breastfeeding intentions are. Um, when, you know, why they stopped breastfeeding past children, when and why. Um, and then I also asked them what might stop them from their breastfeeding goal with this child. I find out about their workplace support. I share the Illinois breastfeeding legislation. I also provide them with information for legal counsel in the event that their um, workplace is not supportive. I let them know about the size of the baby's belly by using, um, these like 
they look like the I use a gumball, but people sometimes use a ping pong ball as well. Um, I also discuss with them the first hour feeds and how important they are. I direct them to firstdroplets.com, which is a website that was developed by a team of researchers, but the most notable one is Dr. Jane Morton from Stanford University. Uh, we discuss stem cells that are in breast milk, and then I show them what I call faith photos. Um, there's stories of other women that have breastfed in trying situations, which I'll touch in a little, touch on a little bit more later. Um, I also help them with the first feed or the first hand expression. So if they, if they deliver the baby full term with no complications, then I help them with the first feed. And then, uh, and sometimes they might, um, have to get like their book blood pressure or get blood drawn or various things at delivery. So they would have to actually give up the arm that's holding the baby. So when I'm there, I'm actually holding the baby onto the breast so that breastfeeding is not interrupted. Um, also in the event of preterm birth, or there's a complication where the baby has low blood sugar or issues with um, respiration and the baby has to be taken to the ISCU um, or you know, put in the warmer, multiple multitude of different scenarios exist where I actually help the mom with breast massage and hand expression. And we get two MLs out of each breast to be given to the baby in real time. Um, I also help with postpartum breastfeeding education and support while they're um, here during their hospital stay for three days after delivery, up to five days if they had a C-section. Um, I give them postpartum outpatient visits as well as when they're returning to work, I can help them um, educate their human resource department. And in some instances, I've even contacted their human resource department in the event that they request that. Um, I provide legal referrals, as I said, if their employer is not being supportive. Um, and then I also give them the connection for their next step of care and resources and support services in the community. And this is something um, that I wasn't hired to do, but I just do it. So because I did it at um, Will County Health Department, um, I approach people that are pregnant um, or I do a little bit of, um, <laughs> of um, information I try to, you know, find out if they are pregnant because you would never want to approach somebody that's not pregnant. But, um, but I find out um, if they've had prenatal breastfeeding education. I offer free prenatal breastfeeding education to employees here over lunch breaks. We just do a lunch and learn, and then I provide them with postpartum breastfeeding support, as well as when they return to work and they're pumping, um, they can call me to get answers in real time if they have questions about pumping. And sometimes even they will forget their pump at home or they forget um, storage bags or they drop something on the floor and it's not clean and they ask for something to be delivered to them in our pump room. So they text me and I get them what they need. I also provide the breastfeeding education. So I provide in-person education, but I also um, use Zoom, FaceTime. I email them, I instant message them. Um, I use informational voicemails. I direct them to videos and YouTube. And then um, I help them, I facilitate um, the Medicaid pump deliveries to their homes. And I also offer a warm line. And um, because a lot of them 
find me on Facebook. Um, they have access to me at night and on weekends um, via instant message and different so social media outlets that I'm on. Great. Thank you. It seems like you have a lot of roles as a peer support counselor, which is great to hear. And are there any other resources and support systems for patients who need assistance with breastfeeding? Oh, yes, there's definitely a lot. So and I, I do share these with patients as well. So um, one of the most common ones is the Office of Women's Health Helpline. It is in English and in Spanish. Um, the phone number is 800-994-9662. Um, it's op uh, operation hours are from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time, um, or obviously 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central. Um, the Infant Risk Center to help moms, they could call that number um, when they have a question about medications that they get put on and breast milk safety. That phone number is 806 352-2519. Uh, I also direct my patients to doulas if they would like. So there's Chicago Volunteer Doulas. That phone number is 773-599-0283. You can email the director at program director at Chicago Volunteer Doulas.org. Um, I also offer, I share my phone number as well. Um, I'm Janelle Hughes-Jones. My phone number is 815-790-3411 for real-time responses. Um, I've received calls for women that haven't been able to rent a pump at the hospital that they delivered at, not receiving water after five hours of requesting it at, at a hospital, um, pumps not being provided to them for preterm births. Uh, I've helped people that are from the United Arab Emirates, Florida, France, um, through different states, Indiana, Wisconsin. People just find me on um, on. Facebook and contact me. There are also Facebook pages. Um, one of a couple of the ones that I moderate are Evanston and North Shore Area Breastfeeding Support, Milk of the Heart Inc. And then I, I do provide free advice on this page on this next page, but I am not the admin for it. It's Joliet Breastfeeding Support. This was the one that was created while I was working at Will County Health Department. Chicago Breastfeeding Collective, which is formerly Breastfeed Chicago. Um, motherhood support group. This group is mostly people of color and biracial women. I was invited because I helped one of the women on this page and she thought it would be very helpful for the group. Um, Mom's Cafe or Cafe de Mama, spelled C-A-F-E-D-E-M-A-M-A. -E -E -M -M -A. It's in Spanish and English. And then also NEB Medical Services for Medicaid pump distribution in one to two days from after when you contact them. Some of the websites would be firstdroplets.com. That's the website uh, created by the research team and Dr. Jane Morton from Stanford University, womenhealth.gov, wickbreastfeeding.fns.usda.gov, magicalhour.org. It's the nine stages of attachment after the baby's born and the baby is placed skin to skin. Um, breastfeedingresourcesontario.ca, 
um, specifically positioning and latching. So once you go to that website and scroll down, you'll be able to see photographs of how to engage the baby's chin first before a latch, which decreases um, almost all the problems with latching on that women experience. And then um, SVUCO, S-V-U-C-K-O at V-U-C-K-O-L-A-W.com. Um, this is a women's workplace rights firm. And um, this is somebody that I direct patients to if they have tried to help make their, um, their employer more supportive with their pumping um, and it's not working. So when they need outside assistance, they have gone there. Um, YouTube videos, I use uh, Dr. Kotlo. Kotlo is spelled K-O-T-L-O-W apostrophe S. Laser surgery videos for tongue and lip ties. Stanford hand expression video. Skin to skin by Neil Bergman, spelled N-E-I-L-B-E-R-G-M-A-N. An interview with Dr. Fatani Hasetau. Um, it's regarding breast milk, milk stem cells. Um, Fotani Hasetau is spelled F-O-T-E-I-N-I, -I, last name spelled H-A-S-S-I-O-T-O-U. Um, I also direct people to a video on YouTube um, entitled COVID-19 Turns Breast Milk Green, Human Milk and COVID-19 with Lars Bode, PhD, The Perfect Breast Crawl um, from no New Orleans Birth. And then um, the apps that I use are Mommy Meds for Medication and Breast Milk Safety Ratings by Thomas Hale, and then Doula Contraction Labor Coach. And a new um, app that's just come on the market is called Earth, capital I-R-T-H, by Kimberly Seals Allers. Thank you so much for um, that wealth of resources. That's really helpful. Yes. And... In your experience, are most new parents aware of these resources and forms of support? I would say that they're, they're not aware in a timely fashion. So it would be best for people to be aware of these resources prenatally um, and understand with some anticipatory guidance, anticipatory guidance, what type of situation that they might endure um, which would cause them to need the certain resources. So um, most hospitals do give a list of support, but typically the support that is listed is not free. So the, the support that I just shared, they are all free resources. Um, and the reason why they need to be aware of the resources prenatally is because when they experience that situation postpartum, a lot of times it causes a lot of, a lot of anxiety and they're waiting for people to call them back. And it might be after when they have already quit. So what I have found in the Medicaid population in this area is they're not receiving breastfeeding education prenatally. Um, so I try to get all of my patients education by 20 to 32 weeks in the event that they have a preterm birth. Um, so of course, if you're helping people of color, then there's a higher preterm delivery rate. So you definitely want to get that education in 
before a preterm delivery so that they're already knowledgeable of what they need to do to be able to breastfeed exclusively, even in the event of preterm birth and even in the event of separation. Some other, um, well, you had mentioned, you just really asked if they're aware of those resources. So I would say not generally, short answer. <laughs> and from what you have gathered from your role as a peer counselor, what are the main barriers that deter parents from breastfeeding? Um, I would say uh, lack of prenatal breastfeeding education would be the number one from their social service agency or even WIC. Um, lack of awareness of the first hour feeds or hand expressions, as well as the importance of compressing or squeezing the breast during the time frame that the baby is nursing in that first hour. Um, and then, of course, what they need to do in the event of separation from something, you know, small, like the baby needs to be sent to the ISCU for antibiotics or something larger like preterm birth. Um, Hospital pumping policies typically do not include the first hour. Uh, most of them are getting the pumps to their most policies for hospitals are that they get the pump to the mom by the sixth hour. But the research shows that the first hour has yields that are four times higher than if you wait hour two through six. So women are getting the pump when the amount of colostrum that they could get out is less. So that could be very discouraging to the woman. Um, and sometimes it even causes them to not pump as often as they should or hand express. And they just want to wait until their milk comes in on the third to the fifth day. Um, lack of awareness of second night syndrome and what normal baby behavior looks like. Babies tend to be up right around 8 or 9 p.m. on the second night you know, one, two, three times every hour till eight o'clock in the morning. Um, and it's the third morning that the milk typically comes in. So when people are not aware of those symptoms or sin the baby's behavior during that time frame, sometimes um, they want to either quit breastfeeding or offer supplements. One of the hospitals um, that did research on this that um, was in my network from Will County, um, they found that 30% of women were breastfeeding through second night syndrome, but 70% of women either quit breastfeeding or offered supplementation on the second night. Um, lack of consistent information, for example, with preterm deliveries and breast milk production strategies. So when women know that if they have a preterm baby, they need to get colostrum out early to get milk in early. I have found that if you set the expectation high, they are, you know, they're following the instructions that you give them. And I have plenty of moms that deliver, you know, as early as 29 weeks that are exclusively breastfeeding slash pumping upon the time that they go home with their babies. So um, there's data that shows that Women that are African-American or identify as Black, as well as Latinas, um, they're breastfeeding, they're giving um, mother's own milk between 24% and 27% at discharge. And I have women that are giving 100% breast milk um, that have delivered at 29 weeks, 29-week twins, um, 30, 31 weeks, 34, you know, all throughout, you know, 
preterm stages and they are leaving breastfeeding exclusively. So if they're aware of what they need to do to get to that point, I find that they're doing it, but many women are not aware. Um, medication and mother's breast milk information. A lot of times um, doctors are giving incorrect uh, information or not giving any information and women either quit breastfeeding or they're not pumping and dumping. And then when they go back to try to breastfeed after they've been on medication for two to seven days, um, their supply has dropped. I would also say some barriers would be lack of real-time answers when they're dealing with a current breastfeeding issue. Um, Programs that offer breastfeeding help might not offer flexible work schedules for nights and weekend help when many women are quitting breastfeeding. And to kind of help with that problem, if um, an organization hires breastfeeding peer counselors or doulas and they're concerned about texting, um, the peer counselor herself um, or the actual organization uh, could purchase a policy. Um, I have a policy from C, M, and F. Uh, for lactation counselor. Um, it includes telehealth. It's $114 for the year for one to $6 million in coverage. Uh, the website for that is www.cmfgroup.com. Um, some other barriers would be scary stories um, dealing with pain, not enough supply and returning to work or school. And then also the lag time that it takes for us to come out with research findings and for hospital policies to reflect what we know. So most people call that bench to bedside or translational research, just the lag time, how long it takes to change hospital policies that are supportive of breastfeeding with new research that comes out. And um, in your discussion, you spoke a lot about workplace environments and um, that being one of the key barriers. And can you just um, give some effective strategies to minimize barriers in the workplace? I can definitely. So um, the first thing is I share stories with women as well as photographs of what employers have done to support their employees. So sometimes you have an employer that just lacks the knowledge of what the breastfeeding legislation is. Once they find out about what the breastfeeding legislation is, they just comply and they do it. They help. Um, but there's some people that you almost have to prove it to. So um, I'll give two, four examples. I had a person that worked at an insurance company in Chicago. I'm not going to name it. Um, and she was you know, working with her HR and it wasn't going as quickly as she wanted it to. So then she asked if I would contact them and share some of her situation. Um, and I did. And part of the issue was the, they actually had a pump site, but the pump site was located in another building that she didn't work in. So to collect her things, to get over there, take the elevator, get up there, it was taking like 15 minutes. And then she was pumping and then having to clean up and get back to her cubicle. It was adding on time because of the distance. So they ended up building her a pump site um, literally right next to her cubicle, which was a beautiful show of support. Um, so that's one situation. Another, And 
And I think it's important to realize that the process, she did everything that she could do. She created a paper trail. She was sending emails to um, the human resource department. And when it wasn't happening as quickly as she would like, probably because they already had a location. So um, then when I got involved, um, that's when the second location was built. Um, but then I've helped other people who they did the same thing with creating a paper trail um, via email with their manager and um, they were not supported. And the, the accommodation that was made was that this particular person had, her option was to pump in one of the, um, it was at a fast food chain and she could pump at a table near an outlet where all of the patrons of this restaurant could see her because they wouldn't allow her to use the office in the back that was locked. So there have been plenty of locations that have allowed people that are pumping at that time, you know, during their time of their shift to be able to use an office such as that, but this particular place wouldn't. Um, so primarily, you know, I just let them know about what the Illinois legislation is. I share what options they have. And, and just really quickly, um, if your employer in the state of Illinois has five or more empl employees, they're required by law to allow you to pump your breast on your break and on your lunch. If you would like to combine your break and lunch together, you're allowed to. Some employers have even split it up 20 minutes, 20 minutes, and 20 minutes throughout the shift. Um, even after you combine your lunch and break together, if you need more time because you're not getting the milk that you need, you're allowed to request more time and employers pay their employee during the time that they've requested. Um, and if the employer does not want to adhere to what our legislation is, uh, they have to write a letter asking to be withdrawn from um, having to provide those accommodations. And then ultimately, I will share one other thing. Ultimately, I have shared the, um, the lawyer's name that I mentioned earlier in the event that women are not getting the support that they need. Um, I've, I have not personally had somebody get fired from their position, but women have reported, very few women have reported getting their hours decreased. Um, and... Um, the women that I have worked with, there's been a few that have left their positions because support wasn't being offered. And then after leaving their position, they contacted lawyers. Thank you so much for speaking about um, and addressing the workplace barriers. That information is really helpful for our listeners. And I know in your previous responses, you spoke about other barriers as well. So I was wondering what are the most effective strategies to minimize the other barriers you spoke about and to provide support to parents who are having a difficult time with breastfeeding? So I'm almost of the mindset where if you get prenatal breastfeeding education, and you are knowledgeable of the first hour feed or hand expression. And during your hospital stay, you are doing both um, breast massage and hand expression as well as breastfeeding and or 
pumping if the baby is separated from you. I have plenty of women that leave the hospital exclusively breastfeeding. So once a woman goes home, I just think that a lot of times women are waiting until, because a lot of times women will say, you know, it's supposed to be natural. I'm trying to do it on my own. So they do try and many women will call it six weeks and six weeks isn't too late to call, but it's so much easier to help a woman in the first week after delivery than if she's waiting for long periods of time because your milk supply can actually increase and decrease in one to three hours. So even when a woman, I always tell women, even if you have an issue on a Friday night at 7 p.m., don't wait till Monday to reach out to get an answer because typically if babies are nursing on, on average 10 times every 24 hours, waiting from a Friday night to a Monday morning, that's you know over somewhere between 20 and 30 feeds you know, and it doesn't have to be that long before she gets help. Oftentimes when somebody asks a question, you know, it could be five minutes of te texting back and forth or receiving a couple of videos where her issue is, is gone in moments and she could just go on, go on to, you know, breastfeed without any problems. I would also say that um, breastfeeding education helps moms feel confident when they deliver. Because one of the things that I share with patients is um, breastfeeding education is not required by physicians or nursing staff. They can become educated, um, you know, after they become physicians or nurses, but it's not required in their schooling and their education. And they might end up you know, getting a nurse that's helping them that has no children and has never breastfed and also doesn't have any breastfeeding education. She's aware of colostrum. She's aware of, you know, skin to skin and certain things that the hospital, um, you know, has policies on, but um, she might not be, you know, very educated in breastfeeding beyond that. Um, she could also get a woman that breastfed, you know, three of her children and has breastfeeding education or, she can get a nurse that formula fed all of her children, has breastfeeding education, but is not really an advocate for it. So I like for my moms to be walking in to the hospital for delivery with so much knowledge that when they hear something that is opposite of what they've been taught, they feel confident to question it and confident to be assertive about what they were taught. And I'll give you a perfect, for example, um, I help, I help people that find me on, you know, social media. And I sometimes get referrals from people because people know that I help people for free. And um, this particular couple was a professional couple and they were going to be delivering at a very great hospital in Illinois. And um, they received my entire education and were very knowledgeable on the first hour hand expression slash um, breastfeed. And um, when they delivered, their, their infant had to go to the ISCU to get antibiotics because the infant swallowed some meconium um, because the infants, you know, passed a bowel movement in the placenta fluid and swallowed some of the placenta fluid. So they sent the baby to the ISCU for antibiotics 
So the mom was separated for a little over an hour from her baby in the first hour. And um, because this was over COVID, normally I give my uh, patients that I see syringes so that in the event that they get a little bit of pushback wherever they deliver, they already have the syringes and they don't need to navigate that. And this particular person who I said is a professional as well as their husband um, asked for syringes and the nurse on staff said, why do you need syringes? And they said, because I'm going to do hand expression. Um, And the nurse said, oh, we don't do that here. And the patient was like, I was educated by a lactation counselor. I have watched first droplets. I went to firstdroplets.com and I know that in the first hour after delivery, I have the ability to get out four times more colostrum than if I wait. So the nurse reluctantly gave um, this woman syringes, but the woman did tell me I was not educated at that point on how to do breast massage and hand expression or how to use the syringes. So had I not received the education ahead of time, um, I would not have you know, been aware. It's not something that this particular hospital who is a renowned hospital, that's not the type of education or support that she would have received if she hadn't received prenatal education. Yeah, that's a great example of self-advocacy. And I was just wondering, how can parents best advocate for themselves to receive the breastfeeding support and resources they need? Um, I would I would say be firm, be assertive when asking for the things that you need, um, that you know are, you know, from your research and from your education necessary for breastfeeding success. I would also say find someone for real-time support, um, whether that's a Facebook page, um, an app, um, or someone that is a breastfeeding peer counselor. IBCLCs are great, of course, but the thing is, is you don't always, if you're waiting from when you deliver to six weeks after delivery to start to look for help that when you were having a problem at two weeks, it's probably likely that you, you need an IBCLC. But if you have a problem when you go home on day two or day three and you make the call within an hour to get tips from somebody you're more than likely going to be able to rectify the situation so you don't have a bigger problem later at three weeks or four weeks or six weeks or something. I would also say that um, when you're having issues at the hospital, uh, write your complaints in writing and keep a copy and make sure it gets um, to the proper person and you go through the proper channels so future women and birth persons don't have to deal with the same scenario in the future. I teach the importance of a paper trail and that everyone that works in healthcare knows if it isn't in writing, then it didn't happen. So as long as you keep that in the back of your mind while you're experiencing what you're experiencing, that's why it's very important for you to write it down as well. Um, Because especially now that a lot of hospitals, um, including my own hospital, are creating birth equity committees, um, this type of correspondence or this type of paper trail would be great to be able to present to committees or task forces for a hospital 
to see the experience of a woman so that they could figure out ways to um, stop those situations from happening. And you touched on this a little earlier in the conversation, but how can primary care providers and OB guides support their patients in their breastfeeding journey? Um, I would say that primary care providers should hire a breastfeeding peer counselor with the minimum 20 hours of education or a CLC, which is 40 hours of breastfeeding education and or doulas to help their patients both prenatally as well as with postpartum support. Um, when I was on the um, Illinois CHW advisory board as a breastfeeding peer counselor um, back in 2015, um, I was doing, I was responsible for certain research in our report. And one of the things that I found is there are some physicians that send one of their, um, not so much their front desk people, but send one of their staff that's not a nurse to go attend a breastfeeding class, one breastfeeding class of an hour. And then that person is their breastfeeding support person. And that does not equal a 20 hour breastfeeding education. So you have women that are thinking they are speaking with the physician's breastfeeding care team. And it's one of their front desk people that took one hour breastfeeding class. I would not consider that breastfeeding support. So the first thing would be to hire an actual breastfeeding care counselor or CLC, um, also a doula. Um, I also think that in the event that the physician is not going to make that hire, um, that they should encourage their, um, their patient to take a prenatal breastfeeding class and already know where to be referring them. Back in the day, we used to have doctors order certain things I mean, I would bring the order back and order breastfeeding education because it's very, very important. Um, if they don't do that, at the very least, direct them to firstdroplets.com. Um, and maybe also while the patient is waiting to be seen by the physician, have somebody come in with a um, laptop to go to firstdroplets.com and place it in front of the patient while they're waiting and um, potentially give some type of incentive for the patient to go through this website. Um, I would also like to see in the future, and this isn't so much for um, primary care providers, but I would also like to see that the MPINK score um, would also include the percentage of first hour feeds that are being done at whatever given hospital, as well as the length of that first feed. Um, and I think it, just, just to reiterate what I shared before, that research done by Dr. Jane Morton of Stanford and her research team reports that the first hour feed and hand expressions yield four times more colostrum than if you wait hour two through six. So everybody in the industry usually says early out, meaning colostrums, when you get colostrum out early, that means breast milk is early in. So early out is early in. In my personal opinion, the first droplets is a game changer. It's changing how much is coming out in subsequent feeds. So 
only typically 30% of a hospital population is getting their baby to breast in the first hour after delivery. So the rest of the 70% of the people are not, or it's a shortened, it's a shortened feed. And we are, we're putting a lot of our, our observations are, and our stats are mostly generated from women that are not getting a first hour hand expression or a first hour feed. And I think that if 70% of the women were getting the first hour feed, you would see a lot of changes in what the suggestions and the advice would be with breastfeeding. So earlier um, I was explaining how the colostrum and the milk ebb and flows. And just like how when we are watching the monitor for contractions, when the oxytocin is the highest, that's when the contraction is at its peak and then it decreases. And just like how when we're delivering a baby, um, the contractions do not look like, the monitor doesn't look like a rainbow, just one huge contraction. It actually is up, down, up, down, up, down because the hormone oxytocin comes and goes, it ebbs and flows in waves, but it still ebbs and flows in waves with, um, with breast milk and colostrum production. So when I have been doing breast massage and hand expression, um, when a baby is separated from their mom at birth, um, I am doing it for one to five minutes when it starts to come out. And um, the, the sooner that I get there, it'll even come out in like five seconds and it's coming fast and it's coming, it's coming. And I could get one syringe really quickly and then it slows. So then I have to go back to breast massage to increase that oxytocin. Um, and then the second letdown happens and it comes out fast again. Um, and it's very important for people to know that because um, the more of those mountains that you're getting, um, the more times that you can get the colostrum to quickly flow again, um, you're helping empty that breast, which also helps make more milk. And I think a lot of people are not aware of that. And they might do breast massage and hand expression for five minutes. And when it stops, they think that they're done, that they don't have any more left. And that's not true. Same with when a baby is on the breast, when that, when that experience happens, babies, the research from Peter Hartman shows that when the ebb happens of the um, oxytocin, as well as the flow of the colostrum or milk, and it slows down, it also slows the baby's suck down. Um, not because the baby is tired per se, but because the flow is not there, so the baby thinks it's over. So when a mom is doing breast compression, not just at the first feed, but also throughout her hospital stay, that's helping the baby empty the breast. Um, the way that the, the breast milk actually increases, um, sometimes people describe the breast as bunches of grapes. And while it looks like bunches of grapes, when you squeeze a grape, the grape is going to break. It's really like if every, anybody has ever seen a bulb, it's like bunches of bulbs. Like I call them snot suckers, but you get them at the hospital like to remove fluid from the nose and the mouth, um, those bulbs. Um, your breast is actually filled of um, alveoli and the um, it works off of, what is it, negative negative vacuum pressure. So when you squeeze one of those bulbs and you stick it in water and let go, 
the water is going to get sucked up into the bulb via negative vacuum pressure. But if the bulb was full and I put it in water, you cannot fill something that's already full. It will fill when it's emptied. So that's why it's really important to help the baby get to a stage. And, and most people tell you, you never truly empty a breast. And while that is true, you can get closer to, you want to be able to give the baby more mountains to help bring in more milk. So this form of feeding, sorry, I have so many follow-up questions. Sure, sure. This form of feeding should be presumably continued even post-hospital stay, correct? Um, quite honestly, I would say that if you're doing it for the first three to five days, because um, firstdroplets.com, as well as when you click on all of the different um, research articles that went into developing it, the research shows that breast massage couple, breast massage and hand expression coupled with um, pumping in the event of separation or with breastfeeding, if you have the baby, that actually will create the most milk when it comes in. But they only suggest that um, breast massage and hand expression really be used that first three days to see that increase. So while in the hospital, if you're doing breast massage and hand expression coupled with pumping and or breastfeeding, that's all that's really necessary because then once your milk comes in, you have already put in the information to your breast and your brain of what you were, of the work that you did that first three days and you'll see the fruits of your labor when you go home. But when people aren't doing that and they're going home, that's when they might not be getting as much milk and they might be trying to do breast massage and hand expression. But the thing is, is at that point, you're going to want to be using like um, a hospital grade electric breast pump um, in addition to breastfeeding the baby for the stimulation. But the research does not show do exclusive pumping with a hospital grade pump while in the hospital if separated from the baby. It does not show do exclusive hand expression, it shows that you're supposed to use both for the highest yields. And that's why I take those pictures because what I have found from interviewing the women is when they pump first, they follow it up with only one to five minutes of breast massage and hand expression. When they do breast massage and hand expression first for 15 to 25 minutes on each breast and then follow it up with pumping, they're having yields as well as letting down to their pump. Oftentimes women are not even letting down to their pump during their first three days of their hospital stay. If they're separated from their baby, um, they're just not letting down to the pump if they're only pumping, but with no hand expression. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you. You're welcome. And I haven't published, although... <laughs> I do ask women always for the permission to, to share their milk photos because people are saying that the photos are a game changer. Like first droplets is a game changer, but all I'm doing is following what this website is saying and telling women to do it. They believe it and then they're doing it. And then they're giving me the pictures as a result of what evidence-based data is telling us. So then I just share those photos with other women and I have situations surrounding, like even if a mom had her baby taken from DCFS, 
she's still pumping and, you know, um, providing breast milk for her baby. Situations of adoption, they're pumping and giving their baby that got adopted the milk for the first six weeks. Um, moms that have preterm babies, moms that are homeless, moms that are dealing with domestic violence situations. So these moms allow me to take pictures of only their milk and I'm allowed to share the gestational age of the baby, as well as um, any comorbidities that the mom has, like diabetes, high blood pressure, and so on and so forth, um, as well as um, the yields, how much colostrum came out, and then how many hours after delivery we were getting these yields. And I show these photos with the information to other women dealing with the same circumstance, um, but I also use those in my breastfeeding education and women are like, wow, I had no clue. I thought I genetically didn't make milk and I had no clue about this. If I knew this, I would have done this. And then they start, um, they start evaluating. They're not internalizing while, why they were unsuccessful with breastfeeding in the past, they are now putting the blame or showing causation of hospital policy. There are women that haven't gotten a pump for three days after delivery, three days. And they're like, it had nothing to do with me. Three days is after a very long window, you know? So it's great when they realize that and those are the moms that they're just doing above and beyond. They're great students. They already had a failure in the past. And now that they've been given the, you know, instructional keys to success, they're just doing wonderful with production. Wow, that's that's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. I really do hope you get to publish this at some point in your career. Yeah. This is great information. And to close the podcast, um, I just wanted to ask, since you're a mother and have firsthand experience with the joys and difficulties of breastfeeding, do you have any parting advice for parents during their breastfeeding journeys? I definitely, I definitely do. Um, really keep it simple. I think that there's a lot of anxiety around breastfeeding, partly because we're getting our stories from people that had, they didn't know what the expectation is. They didn't know that the first hour feed was important, skin to skin, rooming in, um, not offering formula supplementation. Um, they didn't know the list of things that will make them successful. And they also may have been aware of the list, but not aware of why those things help make someone successful with breastfeeding. Um, so keep it simple, get your prenatal breastfeeding education. And I, I will leave you with this. My grandma, um, she worked on a farm in Mexico and milked cows. She had a fourth grade education and she learned about milking in 1918. She taught my mom how to milk a cow at the age of six. And she taught me at the age of 10. And I still use the ancient wisdom that I learned from her from milking cows when I help women. And um, breastfeeding education doesn't have to be exhaustive. Stay out of your head, seek help sooner than later, 
um, because just remember breast milk can increase and decrease in one to three hours and work within the physiological and anatomical windows um, postpartum. And what I mean by that is um, in the same way that, so oxytocin is the hormone of falling in love. It's the hormone of orgasm. It's the hormone of um, skin to skin touch. It's the hormone of pregnancy and delivery as well as breastfeeding. And um, after delivery, that hormone is at the highest state, which is partly why you're able to get so much colostrum out. So you have a lot of women wondering why after their delivery, whether it was vaginal or C-section, whether the baby was separated after birth or with them, that if the first time that they offered the breast at eight hours, that's, that's a long time to wait. So you want to act within that window of time that is going to give you the highest success. And Janelle, thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge on breastfeeding with us today and for providing us with numerous resources to support our listeners' breastfeeding journeys. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was, this is great. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities, National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to set content.